All right, everybody, welcome to the September 27th edition of Cascadian Views. It's uh, me and Chris today. Howdy, howdy, Chris. Hello. Uh, we now have a Supreme Court nominee. It is, as expected, and as we just assumed it was last week, Amy Coney Barrett. Um, mm-hmm. There was, I guess, a little bit of a late push for Barbara Lagoa. Uh, did I get her name right? Yeah, in yeah. Florida. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that was really pushed by some Republicans in order to shore up Trump with Hispanics, uh, which he's running surprisingly strong with, considering all the deportation and, you know, racism. Um, <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. But they wanted to shore him up even more uh, with that pick. He ended up bucking that for what I think was the favored position of the Republican Party, which was Amy Coney Barrett, who's viewed as kind of a slam dunk uh, among those on the right. Um, in fact, there was talk of her being the nominee instead of Kavanaugh, just because they assumed Kavanaugh would be messy, which he was. Right. Uh, so what do you think of it? I mean, I, I think it's abominable and <laughs> it makes sense. Um, she's, she's widely considered to be a good bet for, uh, you know, if not overturning Roe v. Wade further, clipping it back. And who knows what she's going to do on the ACA. She's, she is extremely conservative and uh, the particularly religiously motivated kind of conservative. Not like explicitly so. Yeah, not in the normal, like, evangelical way, though. She is a, right. a very doctrinaire Catholic um, with all of the, the craziness that comes with that. Um, I, extremely devout Catholics, those who follow, like, every letter of church teaching, are, are a strange breed because Catholic dogma is really fucking weird. <laughs> like all religious dogma is pretty weird to me, but Catholic dogma is is exceptionally weird to me. Um, to the point that I, I think even most Catholics agree with that. You don't see the the ultra orthodox Catholics in America as much as you you know say once did a hundred years ago. Right. And I mean, I guess in theory, and I do know people like this personally. She could be the kind of Catholic who is actually thoroughly pro-life in the sense that she's absolutely opposed to abortion, but also actually believes in mm-hmm. helping out people socially in other ways. I, I've made that point before that the the Catholic Church, at least in its upper bodies, and I should you know preface this by saying at their best, not always, uh, really do seem to follow through with that. They've been staunchly pro-war for a while, if we ignore that time they made a pact with Hitler. <laughs> but it, at least in the modern era, they've been staunchly you know, anti-war. They've been uh, very much uh, against or for like food aid to impoverished countries. They, they walk the walk on that, um, at least in the Vatican. The American Catholic establishment um, especially at like the bishop level, tends to have a lot of reactionary right wing in it. Um, but the majority of the Catholics are not that. Um, in fact, if you look around Washington, the party with the most Catholics in office is by far the Democratic Party. Um, more Catholics in the House, more Catholics in the Senate. Uh, right. Most of the liberal justices at this point are Catholic, uh, especially with the addition of Sonia Sotomayor. Um, Hispanic communities lean heavily Catholic because of the 
influence of Spain in colonialization, uh, whereas America tends to be Protestant because, you know, England. Yeah, I will say that the right has a, an interesting ability. It's very practical to <laughs> <laughs> to align on values across things that you think wouldn't fit, like, you know, the nominee is a Mormon. All the evangelicals are absolutely convinced Mormonism is a cult, but close enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You um, you have a, a history, a short legislative history for Amy Coney Barrett. She was not a judge until a handful of years ago. And by a handful, I mean, like, President Trump's term. Uh, she was a law professor before that. She came from the right. academic world. So the number of cases you can look over is, is fairly thin, which I think is actually a plus for uh, Republicans. There's less to get the media angry about in there. Um, there are some pretty big doozies in there, though. In one dissent in, uh, I believe, 2017, shortly after she was added to the bench, she uh, decided that gun rights were an individual right that entitled each citizen to own and use firearms, but that voting was a societal right and that only good upstanding citizens should be able to vote because the right to vote applied to society as a whole and not any individual person. Mm. Which, uh, frankly, seems pretty backwards to me. <laughs> Is there anything you noticed in a record at all? Um, you know, I am. I haven't been following her record as closely. Um, I have been following her, uh, and and I buy the argument that there is a difference between personal beliefs and what one does publicly. Except on the right, there isn't as much. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so I've been following more her her membership in a certain kind of subculture of the Catholic Church that is very strongly, you know, the wife is the servant of the husband in the family. Mm -hmm. She has uh, a number of really weird affiliations, um, especially from her time in, in college and whatnot, very, as you, you know, implied, they're very ultra-Orthodox Catholic groups. Um, and it's not that they're Catholic groups, per se. Um, we we totally had this with Kennedy, like the I'm not going to sell out the U.S. to the Pope uh, sort of reassurances he had to give uh, in order to right. be considered, you know, acceptable to the mainstream in America. We are long past that. Uh, but this creeping theocracy, this Taliban of, you know, white people who want to impose their version of Sharia law in America is really kind of reaching a crescendo at this point, I think. And Amy Coney Barrett is a, a symptom of that. Right. Yeah. Right. And that's where my concern judicially in terms of how she may rule and the kinds of things she may rule on lies. Uh, and then this also is getting railroaded through pretty hard. I believe Republicans have set a October 9th uh, start to to the confirmation hearings. That would Something mean, thereabouts, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm looking at the time frame. That's a Friday, so I don't actually know if that's true, if they're going to adjust that back, or if maybe that's just an introduction date and then they actually start the work on Monday. Um, but they're looking to do it in, yeah, about a week's time. 
which will be an interesting background because debates are about to start. That's also something that should have been on the topic list. Uh, I just realized we have our first debate in two days from the time we're recording this. Yeah. Tuesday. Uh, obviously, it's going to come up. Chris Wallace actually has already announced that it'll be a topic. He's the moderator for the first debate, uh, and he released the topic list uh, a couple days ago. Uh, also, Biden and Trump have agreed to rules. Uh, no mask for either candidate or the moderator. Instead, they're going to keep them separated at all times. There's going to be no pre-debate handshake or whatnot. They're going to maintain a, a strict social distancing regime in order to kind of keep everybody safe. Uh, but I imagine the Supreme Court's going to dominate uh, that debate. It's also going to dominate the Senate races uh, we've been looking at. It probably killed Susan Collins' hope for re-election if she had one. Right. Uh, any other impacts you know? Um, well, the I think the... The impact I'm interested in is kind of which way the boomerang <laughs> of it will go. There is a school of thought that the um, confirmation of Kavanaugh actually kind of turbocharged the purple races in 2018. So maybe it was likely the Democrats were already going to lose a lot of those seats, but it really kind of supercharged the Republican voters. They were like, hey, hey look, our senators delivered. So I, I find it a little curious, though, um, like you mentioned, which way the boomerang swings, because it's also energizing the Democrats to an insane point. In yes. the, the week since RBG died, Act Blue, which started in 2004, has raised 5% of the total money they've raised in their entire history. Uh, it's, it's like $315 million or something in just the last seven days. Yeah, but I guess my question about that would be, you know, maybe it enrages lots of people in California. It doesn't enrage lots of people in Vermont because there aren't lots of people here, but proportionately, let's say it mm. enrages lots of people in a place like Vermont. In a state like North Carolina, which which way does it tilt? Does it tilt more kind of moderate voters who are saying, you know, this is too extreme for the Senate. I am going to back Cal Cunningham. Or do more conservative voters say, hell yeah, this is just what we wanted. I'm turning out to vote. Uh, I had seen a, a poll showing it's actually pretty uh, across the board. Let me uh, let me see if I could find that again. Uh, yeah. Okay. So uh, it's making in Georgia, North Carolina, the CBS News Battle Tracker uh, poll released today showed mm -hmm. that the Supreme Court is making Democrats in Georgia more motivated to vote by sixty percent, for Republicans forty six percent. In North Carolina, once again, 60% for Dems, 47% uh, for Republicans. Those numbers are basically the same. There's a 1% difference in the Republican side, which could very easily be statistical noise. I, that is a nice piece of evidence. Yeah. Um, and when you, they, there was more of a breakdown of this. And uh, when they were asking the total electorate doesn't make them more likely to vote, it was, it was pretty high up there. And... Uh, 
doesn't matter basically or no change or it doesn't affect anything was neck and neck like basically tied and then the less motivated to vote was like two percent it is having an effect i think i the republicans uh having issues with this i think is just reflective of they were more motivated to begin with and this is right. helping democrats catch up um you know if you were going to vote Republican, but you weren't motivated enough and helping Trump get this pick was the thing that pushed you over the edge, uh, there aren't that many people there. My dog had an opinion on that as well. I, I definitely heard that. That's an astute observation. Uh, all the pups <laughs> out there listening will no doubt agree. Uh, let's see. RBG was uh, the first woman in history to lie in state in the U.S. Capitol. Her body mm -hmm. was uh, lied in state both in the Supreme Court and there. Uh, quite a bit of, of dignity and uh, pomp and circumstance around that. Her uh, former clerks, basically all of them, I think it was 125 when they counted them all up, uh, stood guard around the Supreme Court over her body as a sign of respect. Um, even Amy Coney Barrett and President Trump just heaped praise on RBG, which is yes. a little disingenuous considering they're trying to undo everything she stood for. But uh, there, there was widespread bipartisan uh, adulation for RBG in her death, which is a little surprising to me. Yeah, I think it's true. I mean, what what more stands out is the handful of people who haven't taken up that note because it has been so widespread, which is good to see. It's nice to see that in some area of America, people can still do that. Yeah. Uh, all right. I guess we'll uh, bounce on over to Portland, uh, which had uh, a Proud Boy rally yesterday. Um, turned out to be a major fizzle. Uh, the Proud Boys were expecting a, a few thousand people. Um, also, some chat logs that were leaked to the Guardian uh, showed how they were going to use those people to, you know, just unspeakably violent things. They were planning all sorts of lynchings and all that. Um, in the end, only a few dozen showed up, and they seemed to be caught off guard. Uh, there had been a large white supremacist group on Facebook that organized around the protest. And uh, I guess all the people who pledged to come from out of state just didn't show up. Uh, so God bless human laziness prevented a, a major tragedy. In the end, they left after only about an hour and a half. It seemed they were a little bit embarrassed. Uh, but then the nightly racial justice protests downtown were going on, and there was just uh, absolutely disgusting behavior from police. There's... Uh, video all over Twitter of them uh, grabbing a 70-year-old press reporter uh, who's worked with a number of, of outlets, uh, some quite large actually, uh, was down there doing his work collecting photographs and video to sell to news media and whatnot. Clearly labeled press, had stickers on his helmet and all that. Cop grabs him by the front of the shirt, shoves him to the ground uh, for videotaping the police, arresting another dude. Um, just it's I had a little bit of hope because the governor uh, basically sat the Portland police down for the Proud Boys rally um, 
took away their operational command of the scene, put the Oregon State Police uh, in charge and the uh, Oregon Highway Patrol, uh, and they were the ones patrolling that scene, which, by the way, they didn't do a great job either. Some of the Proud Boys showed up with taser shields, like shields wired to tasers uh, with the active wires going around them so that they could hit them into people and turn them on and whatnot. Uh, nothing ended up being used, but they did assault a couple journalists, kicked one in the face, uh, told them they weren't welcome there, and chased them out. They set up checkpoints for people bicycling through the park and whatnot. It was kind of a shit show that the police should have stepped into, but in the end, it was too small of a thing to like really get over the tipping point, I guess. Uh, but that left the Portland police free downtown. Um, to handle the racial justice protest. And, well, they handled it with all the uh, care and subtlety as the Portland Police Bureau typically handles things with, um, which is not much at all. They're a fucking train wreck. Not as bad, I think, as the Seattle cops, from what JJ was telling me, but uh, pretty bad in general. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Uh, anything going on out east? Um, let me think. I we we're, we're actually pretty quiet here. I mean, we don't have any hotly contested races going on. The legislature is finally getting around to um doing the next steps so that we decriminalized marijuana like two years ago. Now they're passing the bill that creates the commercial market for it, and you know licenses growers and things like that. Mm-hmm. And also as part of that, they are put a clause into that that has expungement. So the previous version was, you know, you can get your drug-related charges expunged if you show up at a clinic and if you go through various steps. This newer version has automatic expungement, which is clearly the better way to go in this case. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's nice to see. <laughs> the... Uh... The management of that industry is going to have to be fairly important, I think, as we learned in Oregon. Don't get me wrong. It's been great as a consumer when you're able to buy, like, ounces for 30 bucks or something. But uh, the growers are just fucking dying. We have too many of them, and none of them can turn a profit because they have to sell everything so cheap because we have so much of it. All right. They've got to find export markets. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there was talk, and I, I don't know where it went, about the California, Oregon, and Washington trying to set up some sort of interstate market for that in order to kind of move, be able to move stuff around. I, I questioned the legality of that because that is like the textbook example of when you're under federal jurisdiction, when you're yeah. you know, going between states. And it's still federally illegal. So I'm not exactly sure how that's going to work. But uh, I, I would like to see if anything's happened with that, I suppose. Which is a good example of why the argument, like you're, I'm starting to see this argument now from the right. Like, well, we don't have to worry about federal policy because the states can do what they want. But that is a good example of why you do have to worry about federal policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely. And it could be fixed a couple of the ways. We could just get the federal government out of that sort of thing. But, uh, 
I think the much more likely estimate is, or likely way is that we just legalize marijuana on the federal level. Um, all right. Well, short week, I guess. I, I think that's it, right? Is there anything well, else you want to it, mention? It, it did occur to me, and I think it's uh, maybe speaks to this, the tenor of the times that this didn't even occur to us earlier as a topic, but the president did heavily intimate that he may not accept the election results under any circumstances earlier this week. Oh, yeah, I noticed that. He's been hinting at that for a while, so I guess it just kind of went through how we expected. Um, just how? <laughs> yeah, I, I shared an Atlantic article about how this is going to all play out, and uh, that article sent chills down my spine because it's... Horrifyingly plausible. Not just plausible, it's already happening. Like, it is going on right now, and we don't want to really deal with it. Uh, or more, maybe more to the point, we don't have any way of dealing with it. Uh, mm. There's just... That's the way it is. This is what we got four years ago. Uh, everybody said it was going to happen, and then it slowly happened, and now it is happening, and everybody's talking about what's going to happen in the lame duck and i'm like we already know it's it's going on in front of you um but this is a serious challenge to american legitimacy um people say it can't happen here you know why it can't happen here because people don't do irresponsible things like that the only reason that it can't happen here is that we trust in the moral guidance of people in society not to have an authoritarian takeover. The system isn't especially robust. It's just as fragile as anywhere else in the world. There, yeah. There's nothing unique about America, uh, and we're watching it happen here in real time. I mean, not to get all apocalyptic, but you hear people asking, you know, what would you do during the rise of fascism or the rise of a dictator? And, well, it's what you're doing right now. Yeah. And the, I mean, the key obviously is he himself, plus or minus, doesn't matter what he does. What matters is what all the other actors in the system are willing to put up with. And if we've learned anything about the Republican Party over the last four years, it's that there's, there's not a line they have consistently drawn anywhere. Mm -hmm. And there are already Republican operatives, you know, working on pre-disputing the results in Pennsylvania. Um, they're also speaking of Pennsylvania, they're going apocalyptic about, um, one little town whose name I completely forgot. I apologize for that. Uh, holding an event to make it easier to vote. They have, uh, poll workers in a, a city park, you know, out in the open to, to help reduce COVID risk who are there to collect, um, absentee ballots from people who don't want to mail them or fear the mail is going to be too late. The poll workers will be able to provide um, witness signatures on the absentee ballots. Texas, or not Texas, excuse me, Pennsylvania requires absentee ballots be signed by a witness who's a registered voter in the state of Pennsylvania, which is a hurdle for a fair number of people when you don't want to get in close contact with people outside of your household during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, it's also a, a burden on minority communities who may not speak English well, uh, much harder to find somebody they can communicate with who's also a voter. So the, the city set up this event to collect the ballots, which state law has, says has to be collected by registered election workers. 
um, they'll be delivering the ballots to the election center after the event, uh, and they'll be under the custody of election officials the entire time, uh, which the city says is legal. The Republican Party sent a cease and desist saying this was illegal ballot, uh, ballot harvesting. Uh, and also really didn't like the witnessing thing um, that they were going to be doing. The city ignored the cease and desist and went ahead with it anyway. Um, the Republicans are threatening court action, want to get all those votes tossed. They're, they're actively fighting your right to vote. Yep. Yeah. Um, anything else? <laughs> no, I feel like that's enough. The The future of the Supreme Court and uh, whether or not peaceful oh, yeah. transition of power continues. Uh, let's just end on this high note. They are uh, they're going to do this. Um, I presume they have the votes. Uh, Romney was actually more wishy-washy than I thought at first when I read his actual statement. Um, he's only committed to giving the nominee a floor vote and expressly said he'll decide on whether to vote to confirm until he hears everything. But... I don't hold high hopes, uh, but it is something. So I think there's like a 98% chance they do this, and we really have nothing to stop them. Um, unless we can delay this till like the very end of November, beginning of December. Uh, if we can hold out long enough for Kelly to get there, um, then Pence would have to cast the tie-breaking vote. And uh, I don't know if they want the optics of that. We'll see. That, that would really be forcing their hand pretty hard. Um, and if we get Kelly and Romney decides he doesn't like what he hears, that's also um, kills it dead. But those are, are both pretty unlikely. So I think there's like a 98% chance they get this done. We just, as Dan said, we have to make them pay for it. Every yep. single one of them. Um, the Constitution also gives Congress the right to set the size and jurisdiction of the judiciary. Uh, we're now openly talking about uh, putting new justices on the Supreme Court, bumping the number up from 9 to 13 or something like that. Um, all, all things, I think, really have to be done if they push this through. There's, there's an illegitimacy to the court right now, and the only way to restore faith in it is to fix that. So, yeah, uh, 100% on... Uh, planned court packing. <laughs> yeah, I think if there's a silver lining to this, it's definitely that uh, hopefully it has eliminated close to zero anybody who was still out there saying, well, I'm sure afterwards we'll be able to start compromising and talking with the other side. Yeah, I... I... I have complicated feelings about that. I, I do think a return to comity is like required for a healthy democracy, but I also uh, don't yes. think we're able to uh, to have that in this situation. Like uh, there is just such an imbalance in the reality of the two sides and what it means that I until we come to like a center we're not going to have that and the democrats are, are mostly on a line that overlaps with the center there's a couple of cases where it goes a bit you know far to the left but it's not any sort of major part of the party um 
even Bernie Sanders is not that far out there. AOC is not that far out there. Um, there's only a, a couple people in the party who really matter that are, you know, way out there in tanky territory. Uh, whereas on the right, you seemingly have like three quarters of them hungry for an American dictatorship. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, in, until we fix that problem, I just, I, I don't see any sort of uh, understanding being reached. Agreed. Yeah. All right. Well, have a great week. You too. Bye. Bye.